1: Hello and welcome to the back half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast. I'm Tom, and I'm Kate, and we've just entered the podcast room in the wake of Jason Cowley, our editor, hosting an emergency <laughs> uh, version of his uh, football podcast. And I can feel some of that still in the air. Mm, tr-
2: it's close. I'm trying to it's cha- moist.
1: I'm trying to channel some of that incisive. Sporting commentary. Yeah, I think we need to bring some of that into our own podcast. I
2: watched. Um, it was the first match I ever watched. I think last night.
1: Do you mean ever of the fo- first of fo- football? Th- the first match of football you have ever watched ever.
2: And I found it quite boring, and I was also frustrated by the fact that there are lots of Croatians writhing around on the floor, clutching their shins, which apparently is completely legal in order to waste time.
1: Well, the shin is a very sensitive area and i can one one fact i know about football is that they wear shin pads yes. to protect their shins so this
2: is just proof that it was made up they had shin pads on but presumably they can't just like roll around clutching their shins from the start of the game it has to be when when they they've got a little bit of time left and they don't want someone else to score
1: i think that would be a different sort of game if the entirety of the action was kind of carried out just by rolling around clutching your shins
2: <laughs> childish i can i can <laughs>
1: I can imagine that game. You'd have to sort of nudge the ball forward with your body. Um,
2: also, the other thing I noticed from the football match, yes. the singing is constant, even when tension yeah. is high and things are happening. They're still managing to sing songs up in the in the in the gods, and I just find that really strange. Like, how come they're focusing on their tunes and their lyrics when they're watching people losing and winning?
1: Well, isn't the point of a football anthem though that you don't need to think too hard about the the words?
2: It wasn't the Atomic Kitten one, was <laughs> it?
1: That's quite difficult. What, what were they singing? I don't I mean, know. I it was just the, a generalised roar. And then I think they were they were doing Don't Look Back in Anger afterwards.
2: Oh, maybe that was what I heard.
1: Um, yeah. Anyway. But, um, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it, yeah. When it looked like it was going into extra time. This is football Croatia we're talking about. England Croatia. Football Croatia. <laughs> Croatia. <laughs> we really need to stop now. I had an idea, which is instead of penalties, if if it had gone to that stage, instead of penalties... They should just clear all the players off the pitch and just the goalies, just boot oh, it. Oh, yes. Just try and score. A
2: long, distance long distance shooting.
1: And it would go on, it could go on for a maximum of six hours and eventually someone would make, they'd get so exhausted that someone would make a mistake and and let one in. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome, FIFA. What are we going to be talking about today we're talking Kate. about
2: the um fantastic uh, musical fun home which has come to the young vic
1: excellent and i think we're going to give you some summer listening tips
2: summer sounds um the new album from let's eat grandma and a strange new collaboration between underworld and iggy pop and we'll also have the uh millionth of our non the non-specific event in culture So, Tom, you know this, uh, you're already familiar with this family tragedy comic, as it's called by uh, Alison Bechtel, Fun Home. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah, I love that description, actually. I think it's weirdly accurate. It is a tragedy comic. Alison Bechtel is a cartoonist, comics artist, and Fun Home is a memoir in sort of graphic novel form that came out in 2006. Um, And I remember it well. I was working at The Times, and Erica Wagner, who is the literary editor, editor at the times we both came across this book and were just knocked out by it It, it's it's a really it's an amazingly sort of it's very literary actually it's very written she's got a beautiful drawing style but it's it's also very very literary very densely written lots of references and it is the story it's her own story it's um the story of her father Bruce Bechtel who was gay and Alison Bechtel uh just as Alison Bechtel came out when she was at university, she she discovered that her her father was gay and had been having various both failed and successful affairs with with young men over the years. And then, quite soon after she makes this discovery, he dies. He's hit by a truck, and she thinks it's almost certainly suicide. So the book is her attempt to kind of unravel all these these different threads. The backdrop is amazing in that Bruce Bechtel is a English teacher, but he also runs the local funeral.: He home. does everything, <laughs> doesn't he? <laughs> he runs and he lo-
2: restores houses: And he restores
1: houses. Um, he's such a fascinating character, but yeah the title of the book "Fun Home" is their the family sort of nickname for the funeral home.:
2: Why did he do all those things? He could have just been an English teacher. That's what's strange. Maybe he was just so manically obsessed with work that he needed to have a funeral home on the side and be an English teacher and be restoring houses.
1: Yeah, I think the funeral home was a family sort of obligation in that he took it over from his father or grandfather. But um yeah, he has he he throws himself into all these different aspects of his life and pursues them each of them apart from English teaching, which he doesn't seem he that about, He doesn't really talk about
2: that, although he gets, sends her books all the time, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah,
1: he's got a passion for reading and a passion for literature. but um, and a passion
2: for young men in his class. Yeah,
1: but he pursues all of these strands with kind of monomaniacal intensity, doesn't he? Like When he's decided that he needs to go out and find someone, he kind of does it to the point of doing really stupid things like, giving beers to young guys mm. in his car, which gets him caught.
2: Chilling moments like, uh, my house is back there, sir. Yes, I know. I just wanted to get to know you better. Yeah. I think this is sort of so borderline. Uh, she was approached to write uh, to for a film about this a few years ago. And she said an interesting thing that she... She thought almost that a film would linger around too long if it was a bad film, Mm. (laughs) whereas a stage musical, if it was really bad, would just tank and no one would talk about it again. So in a a sense, she was kind of hedging her bets with with allowing it to be put on stage. Um, It it makes me think about the role of musicals nowadays because this is within that um, vogue for musicals about extremely dark subjects uh, you're in town, and you know, that one committee that was on at the Donmar recently, which was all about the kids' company scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be a very sort of interesting age for musicals because in the old days, you had the ones where the music was obviously the focus, the, the, the great Rogers and Hammersteins. And then you had the the ones which were the jukebox musicals where there was a terrible story stitched together around the big songs by Queen or yeah. whatever. And then this is very different, isn't it? I mean, the music is not a big part of this, even though it's a musical. It carries something. It carries the energy along, but it's not necessarily that you come out singing, singing songs
1: from it. And why did they conceive this as a musical? Why not adapt it? I mean, I'm glad that they did because oddly it works very well, but it seems like setting yourself an enormously difficult task. I mean, I just wonder if there's something about the fact that the original was this graphic novel, so you've got a verbal element, but then the pictures push it into a kind of third dimension, whether the songs kind of occupy Mm -hmm. a similar function in this in that they enable you to be doing two things at once.
2: It's very weird. It's a very subtle appeal that these dark musicals have. And it is something about the kind of slight irony there. Mm. Let's look at this ridiculously dark subject with this kind of jazz hands kind of thing. Well, it it, allows
1: them to do a couple of really, you talk about jazz hands, but there's a couple of really fun songs in here. And there are comic moments in the memoir, but there's nothing quite as mm. all out joyous as, for example, in the musical there is a, there's a scene where the kids are like, Performing of they've made up a commercial for the funeral home, and it's this brilliant sort of of,
2: nineteen seventies Jackson Five disco, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: like a a great disco backing, and they're like popping out of coffins. They've got like. They got really nicely choreographed little dance routines, and this is an
2: aneurysm hook. Is yeah. one of the lines <laughs> things like that? Formaldehyde, all that, yeah.
1: And it works brilliantly well, um, so it allows them to do things like that.
2: It must be, it must be something to do that. The other thing that I I thought was um, uh, Zubin Vala is the guy who plays the, to, who plays Bruce, the father. There's a. a completely uncanny resemblance between him and the pictures in the original graphic novel mm. and i wasn't overwhelmed by him as an actor but i also i was thinking afterwards maybe that was all deliberate as well because it is a graphic novel in your mind if you liked it it is strongly associated with the picture of this guy that already existed that she drew therefore it's important to get someone who is almost a carbon copy of him on the stage and that's unusual because technically you could adapt anybody you could you could have anyone in your mind's eye
1: Yes, and I think, um, I know you haven't, you didn't look at the book until after seeing the stage musical, but from my point of view and talking to other people who'd read the book before, it's uncanny how Zubin Vala does kind of replicate exactly what I had in my mind as as the character of Bruce Bechtel. The combination of um, kind of chilling aggression and anger and um, sort of, Passion and occasionally sort of generous passion as well, the way that he's kind of in some ways really good with the kids and spends a lot of time with them and then in other ways it's just you know there mm. there's a really um there's a scene which does sort of feature in the book but they've really fleshed it out for the musical in which um the young allison is uh is drawing a picture for her homework and she's doing a map of the local area and he starts taking it, he starts saying, oh no, look, this is what you want to do. And it's kind of quite funny. It's like kind of competitive dad, you know? Um, And then he gradually just takes it over until he's, until he's completely pushed Mm. her out of it and saying, you know, you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of the whole class. If you do it your way, it's going to be crap. And at the end, she's completely sort of, cowed by that and kind of just wants his approval
2: but what's interesting about that is that's like a monster parent in Mm. one sense but her mother played by jenna russell is totally detached so which is better you know jenna russell is is practicing the piano and allison's hanging out there and she goes go away you're annoying me you're disturbing me when uh medium allison the teenage one the, the college student comes out she does so in a letter that she sends back to her parents. And the mother never responds to the letter. And she's trying, she's, dad, what did mum say? What did mum say? So in a sense, you can see the seductive power of that parent that's a great educator and is also unpredictable. And that's Mm. why he figures so large in her life compared to her mother in in the early years of it.
1: Yes, um, one of the adapters said that this piece made sense to them when they saw it not as adapting a graphic novel into a musical, but uh what's the quote this wasn't putting the book on stage it was telling the story of how we continue to reach for our parents at every age mm. um and one as always we like to not communicate a, a key fact about something and um the key fact that we've neglected to communicate although you hinted it there was um that Allison is played by uh three different uh actors in the so we've got the child um we've got the sort of college age Alison and then we've got the adult who's the one if basically narrating the story um, and as with the dad bears an uncanny, uncanny resemblance to Alison Bechtel, or at least how Alison Bechtel draws herself yeah in the graphic novel and there's a
2: resemblance between father and daughter and they're yeah. sitting next to each other yeah. in the other car
1: and she um what they've what they've decided to do in this is not to kind of try I mean I, I was reading about because this this has a long um this is a long history, this production. It, they started working at it in kind of 2009, I think. And then there were various off-Broadway productions, the public theatres, public lab in 2012. And in early iterations of the show, they were very much like trying to do stuff with like drawing and cartooning, like and incorporating all of that. And they've stripped that out completely apart from the fact that um, the grown-up Allison, when she's describing scenes occasionally says caption mm. and then and
2: she is sketching she is the sketching, corner the yeah. whole time she's That's at true. she's at her drawing yeah. desk standing up desk yeah
1: um so it's 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 still they haven't erased it completely you, you're right but it but they haven't tried to represent it visually in any way
2: i think they really did some interesting things with the visuals though in another sense because the the home that they live in is this uh they refer to it as a museum oh uh, yeah everything is um he, it's always polishing silver and finding bits of junk and turning them into artifacts and Perfect floorboards and this kind of thing, and for the first part of the the play it 's very much um represented by the odd thing here and there, so there 's a silver jug or there 's like a a coffee table with some books on it and then, for some amazing reason, very close to the end, on one of the final scenes, the backdrop falls, and an incredible three d stage appears that 's completely decked out like this this home that they live in and I just love that a strange decision to. To not use the space that they had and they could have been using from the beginning, but just to put it in right at the end. Mm. And you look at this wonderful—it's almost like a cabinet of curiosities. The entire house that she's been describing all the way along is suddenly visible to you. And I wondered if that's something to do with um, the sense of memory that the, the thing plays with. You know, she's trying to piece together what was he actually like? What what was it like when I was eleven? And then as she gets closer to her current age, bam! There it is. There's the whole house.
1: I think you're totally right. I think that I like that because, and I I wasn't going to say this because I thought it was slightly pretentious, but I like that because it gave a sense of her like slowly accumulating the detail as she's like trying to work this thing out. Yeah. And then by the end of it, as with the graphic novel, she's got this really rich picture and and it's all there. And she talks about in the stage show, she talks about like um, needing these objects, like being obsessed with kind of having the real things to draw it so that she can recapture the reality. when I was at the Times, as I mentioned before, we picked this um the the original book as one of our books of the year. And I did an interview with um Alison Bechtel just over email. But she, she was really interesting. And um one of the things she talked about was how the book took us seven years to put together. And she was obsessive about the detail. Like she she kind of she had all these family photo albums Then, when she couldn't find albums, she'd go on like obsessively go on Google image search to try and like find the exact, you know, exact right parts of the town. And then she just became obsessed with kind of questioning her own reliability as a narrator and like going back and reading her diaries Mm. and trying to question her own accounts of events. And in the book, which they don't really try and put in the stage show, there's a lot about her diaries. And she, as a teenager, she kind of developed this obsessive compulsive streak. And she started, after every statement in her diary, she would write, I think, in tiny letters <gasps> because, you know, she wasn't sure, did it really she happen? She wrote that or at the time? Or at the time. No, she didn't go oh back and put in letters. And then she developed a, because she was writing, I think, so much, she developed a symbol to represent, I think. And And gradually these diaries become more and more obsessive until it's just giant symbols going over and then she talks to her parents about it i think she sees a therapist and she then manages to like row back and like um kind of drop some of her some of her obsessive Mm. behavior but it's something that that's something a bit deeper and has obviously stayed with her is how do you how do you recreate the the truth of a situation Mm. i guess that's what all what all writers are interested in, believe. but also
2: how can she recreate the truth of a situation where she doesn't know whether her father stepped in front of the bus exactly, or was knocked by key, it? That's, that's, the, that's the key. That's the keystone that,
1: that haunts her, and it also there's a sense of what sort of culpability does she have in? Not that she she doesn't sort of go so far as to blame herself, but how much of a connection is is there between her coming out and embracing all these? freedoms that are on offer when when is this it's it's the 70s isn't it
2: it must yeah it's the 70s Um,
1: embracing all these new freedoms and her dad seeing that and then thinking about the paths that he wasn't able to take or didn't have the courage to take
2: and any natural envy he's going to have towards her there with her freedom and yeah. her openly openly yeah. gay with her girlfriend bringing her home to the house. And yeah. I was quite overwhelmed by the um, uh, hype about it. And I always get really grumpy with these things. And I went along thinking like, oh, this is interesting, but it's not going to move me. And then there was one moment when the penny dropped, which was one particular song, which we both, I believe we both liked, called A Ring of Keys. And it's sung by the young Alison, who's Brooke Haynes, who must be all of about 11 years old. She's mm. only been in Les Miserables. And it's it's stunning she's it's about it's basically a, a young girl singing about a lesbian um adult that has walked into a diner and the first time that she really saw an adult woman who reflected something different that she thought actually she might be so it's a sort of love song but to an adult and it's performed in such a remarkable way because it's very tender and it's very shy and it's very adult. It's all full of um, uh, grown up feelings of, of, of romantic shyness in a sense. And she's just a child doing it. I mean, that, you, you were affected by that mm, one, weren't
1: you? Yeah, no, I thought, I, I thought that was wonderful because it was, just, it was just the right mixture of childish wonder and like just the beginnings yeah. of, of kind of sexuality coming into it as well.
2: She says something like, I, I know this sounds conceited, but I, I think maybe you're like me kind of thing. Just- and the
1: key line is that the the thing that really uh, nails that song is is that she's, she's admiring like the way she wears her clothes, the way she carries herself and her ring of keys. And that's yeah. the key thing she fixates on. And I, I think I can really relate. to. I sort of remember as a child, those are the, that's the sort of detail that you would really, you know, you'd want that, like, you know, seeing the caretaker with, with all their, with all their kids, mm. you know. Mm. Um, uh, you'd really... That got
2: a standing ovation when I was there for that one. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing. Not all the songs get claps because they're not that, you know, not that tuneful. I don't know.
1: Yeah. The, um, I read something, the New York Times critic was raving about the music in it and just saying that it it has amazing range and it riffs on, it's kind of influenced by jazz and by mm. time and and the, um, the composer has pulled in all these different influences and turned it into something new. I really enjoyed it at the time, and I felt it fit very mm. well with the with the production. How memorable it is i'm um, I'm not so sure um, do you think it's do you think it's political at all? Do you think it has a sort of a political value or a political message
2: i think the the fact that it's such a huge hit is enough there because if you were to explain this to an audience. Of, you know 10 20 years ago and say that the thing that everyone's raving about is this this dark story of you know a gay suicide and a young gay woman and you know mm. and everyone's rushing to it and the audience when i was there was like super classic posh old london theatre right. audience the ones who would go and see the tempest if it was in the same place mm. and and there's just no division between mm. this being a kind of um a sort of slightly off Broadway kind of idea versus—I mm. mean, just it just felt to me like that's that is mainstream theatre now in London, mm. and I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Mm. I suppose it did. In looking back at, a, it was a kind of it's a kind of funny period because it's before AIDS has really has really blown up. So she even at one point in the book, she even thinks, well, maybe it's good that her dad did. Die mm. at that time because who knows what might have happened later. And um
2: he goes out and um picks guys up, picks sailors up in mm. New York on a trip to New York, which is a very sad scene because he actually leaves the children unaccompanied uh, in the house, nips out, locks the door, and goes off cottaging. Yeah. um And she's very unnerved by that because she knows he shouldn't be leaving. So the three of them, and they're kind of all under the age of 12 or something.
1: I suppose what it does show in a political context is what a society in which kind of op- certain options aren't available to people, how poisonous, that can, how poisonous that can be. Anyway, Fun Home is at the Young Vic until September, so you've got time. Go and see it.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way
1: So, Kate, the hot new album that I'm recommending to everyone at the moment is Let's Eat Grandma and I'm All Ears. And let's hear a little bit of Hot Pink, which is a song that I heard, I think, on Stuart McConey's Freak Zone a few months ago. And it kind of was one of those that just stopped me in the middle of some mundane domestic task and had me uh, instantly kind of what was your task googling uh it was it was probably emptying the dishwasher
2: emptying the cat
1: emptying the cat (laughs) there's no there's no cat to empty but if there was I would I would empty it it just kind of stopped me in my tracks because it's a it's it starts off like a like a very kind of a uh, shiny lord like pop song and then go somewhere completely bonkers anyway here's a little bit of hot pink fan
2: your geez me down you gay cuz that's your miss name all the same kill me now i'm such a drama queen you got something up your sleeves do not you
1: So let's eat grandma's Rosa Walton and Jenny Hollingworth, uh, childhood friends. Since the age of four. Since the age of four, really. Which is amazing.
2: That's they met nice. in reception. And they're from my hometown, Norwich.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they must be sort of, I, all I keep reading is that they were 17 when they released their first album, which I think must make them 18 or 19. Yeah, now. they're 19 right, now.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, they went to uh, Access Creative College on Magdalen Street in Norwich. <laughs> The access colleges were only set up in the 2000s. So when I was living in Norwich, um, I left there in 1999. That didn't exist. But Magdalen Street was where we went on our geography field trips to count the number of closed shops in the 90s recession. Wow. When we did our economic studies of the uh, of the, the, the sort of deconstruction of, of Norwich, really, and how poor it was at that point. And the other thing that Magdalen Street was famous for was that um, it had all the Indian restaurants on and in that era in the middle of the recession, there was a curry war that was famous. So you could actually get curries for two pounds ninety five per main course because everyone was jammed up against each other and they were all competing. But now obviously it has a a performing arts college that so does So they wouldn't have even
1: been born now. They wouldn't would have they? even <laughs> been
2: born. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe their parents went to the, the NASMA Brasserie that we used to go to. But yeah, so they did music degrees there and I believe they both got to distinctions and then they were on the uh, the Norwich scene. And there is a great scene in Norwich because it's one of those little condensed cathedral towns with a university and a goth contingent and a skater contingent yeah. and all that kind of thing. I didn't get any of that because I live 20 miles away, so you have to get the right. last bus home. you know, but but yeah, I do picture them sort of waiting on Castle Meadow and hanging around warm Memorials. I was going to say, do you
1: hear any any Norwich in this in this record?
2: I hear Norwich in the intensity of their hobby. I suppose that they've turned into their job because mm. there's when there's not that much to do in in a place, you you focus in. And I did read that they they used to frequent some of the same places we did, like the waterfront and the loft, which had zebra wallpaper as far as I remember but yeah it's a good it's a good place for bands to start out because there are a few venues and there's not much competition it's not like coming to London you know so I don't know how they were spotted but Faris from the horrors produced yeah, produced yeah produced one of these songs didn't
1: he <clears throat> I think when I read that it made it made total sense because um, it, it's got I feel like it has got his fingerprints on it a little bit he did um, did you ever listen to his project Cat's Eyes mm. um, which I really like actually but it's kind of girl group you know through a kind of weird modern echo chamber it's sort of girl group sound and um, and I think it chimes well with what what they do I mean I don't really know how to describe this <laughs> it's I mean it's it's sort of, it's electronic um the synths and you know like I was saying it, it in some ways it reminds me of um things like Lord. you mm. know I know they listen to Frank Ocean and stuff like that kind of modern quite cool um R&B and electronics.
2: there has got some very rich kind of 70s style mm, ballads yes. almost. There's a song called Ava on there, which sounds to me like if you laid that alongside a Supertramp song, yeah. it would... And I'm thinking that's kind of interesting because it's all very well to be young and talented, but to know how to structure songs like that at that age is quite impressive because that's like... It's that's like a perfect kind of case study of how to write a song, that one. But then I believe also, it, uh, I don't know if it's that track or another one, but it turns into like a nine minute jam. So there's that great sort of sense of experimental random guitar stuff going on as well.
1: And it hasn't, they haven't had the corners smoothed, smoothed off. I mean, I think their first album was more eccentric, but this, you know, like Hot Pink, which is the, the sort of the kind of lead pop record, I guess, does, it is a bit, it's a bit too odd for mainstream radio, isn't it? Um, it lures you into into thinking it's going to be um, it's going to be a straight ahead pop song and then gets quite sort of noisy and you sense that there's something quite kind of willful about them i imagine mm. i you know i don't know how the production worked, but even though they're quite young, I imagine they probably had quite a clear idea of. What yeah, I
2: think they play a lot of the instruments as well. well. They started writing music when they were 13 and one of their early songs was called Get That Leg Off The Bannister. <laughs> so uh, there's this kind of slightly weird, quirky, old soul type thing. There's some strange cliches in the, in the titles as well. I mean, obviously the title itself, I'm All Ears, isn't something that you imagine a 19 year old saying. No. And there was also a song called The Cat's Pyjamas. Yeah. <laughs> and no 19 year old says that. And in a funny kind of way, that almost gives it a, another level of authenticity because it it's so you because know, someone could have come in and said, like, that doesn't really sound like what a yeah. teenager would say, and yeah. but that's what they've said, so yeah. it's fine, you know.
1: And I think although I'm I wouldn't you know place it as Norwich, I think you can tell it comes from outside London. It just it just is a bit like that cat's pyjamas thing. It's just a little bit <laughs> Cool and Collected is another
2: song. Cool and Collected.
1: I like I like the um I like the lyrics. They're kind of, um, there's lots of little glimpses of the kind of odd intensities of being, you know, 17, 18, 19, whatever. Um, There's, it's not just me, it's some kind of relationship. And there's a great line in that about they're having this conversation um, while eating peanut bagels in a foreign state. So that's like (laughs) kind of like, Interrogating somewhere, and they've like, you know, they've bought a pack of uh, they've bought a pack of bagels um because they can't afford anything much more, and they're in some like little yeah. hostel or Airbnb or something, having an intense conversation about their relationship. Those memorable kind Maybe of trips abroad. Too much no, I,
2: I thought the same with them. Um, uh, there's a song that there's a line like, "I feel like we're in the Everglades running through mud," and I was like, "Did you go on holiday to the Everglades <laughs> with your mum and dad at one point five years ago?" and it left an impression. But it's always like fascinating and 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 lovely to hear that sort of emotional intensity about relationships from from teenagers because it's exactly what we all felt. Yeah. But maybe we didn't have the, the forum to put it out there, so it's all internalised and put into diaries and stuff, and yeah. just going for it. Yeah, just it's like, nicely unselfconscious. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, they call
2: it experimental sludge pop, by the way. Sludge
1: pop, do they? Which is okay. quite nice. Yeah. But
2: that sense of the messiness of it and the shoegaziness and the uh, endless songs, you know.
1: Yeah, i will buy that. How do we do a seamless segue into there our There is no seamless segue <laughs> apart
2: from um, Go on. An, another unlikely sound of the summer, but a wonderfully kind of apolitically correct, <laughs> unreconstructed Iggy <laughs> singing about um, the, the days of, of when you could smoke on planes and chat up air stewards um, on his collaboration with Underworld, which I think is a piece of poetry.
1: So this is tea time dub encounters. Let's, mm. let's hear a little snippet of that now.
0: And I put down my trade table and snorted a gram of cocaine until I got up my courage to say, can I
2: have your phone number? And she gave me the number. That was the good news. But the bad news was I got too stoned and I lost the number. The stewardess would have been better than the cocaine.
1: So that was the opening track, Bells and Circles, in which Iggy sort of it's a monologue. And when it when it started, I thought, okay, this is Iggy being himself, but then it becomes clear it's sort of this strange persona he's taken on. And he it's a sort of weird fantasy going back to the thinking about the golden age of being being able to smoke on airplanes. <laughs> and uh and this sort of sends him into a reverie and um, what's the, there's a line in it, is it, it's getting harder to be me. He, yes. He, he keeps coming back to that, that.
2: It's getting harder to be free, getting so much harder to be me, which I just thought, oh, yeah, and, and in Bells and Circles, nobody wants you to do the things that make you feel good. I mean, that kind of feels like our age, I reckon. Yeah. Our kind of um, terribly sensitive age where people like Iggy Pop are now dismissed as white men in mm. rock rather than... Um, anything more diverse. And it's like, it feels a bit like a kind of a kick against that. I mean, maybe I'm reading that into it, but I enjoy that because I enjoy the fact that he's saying, he says that, you know, you basically, if the air steward's hot, then you can pick her up. So it goes like, um, they would open the door at the airport and you'd walk out onto the tarmac and up those stairs and light a big cigarette and stick it in the ashtray and the stewardess would come along. And if she was hot, you could try and pick her up. And that's how great it was in the past. And I just like the fact that someone's saying that.
1: There are, of course, good um safety reasons why we can't smoke on airplanes now (laughs) but what's weird about that song as well is that he starts i'm i'm being way too literal on this but he starts off by saying if i had wings this is what i do and then the thing he'd do is smoke on an airplane well (laughs) if you had wings you wouldn't Necessarily need to be on the airplane. I, I mean, yeah. Okay. This I'm, all I'm, depends
2: on how he uh, writes his words, which we were wondering about because uh, he allegedly, for a long time anyway, did that dada thing of uh, writing a load yeah. of stuff out and then chopping it up and putting it together in a different order. I don't know. I mean, you listen to his radio show, don't you? So yeah,
1: he kind of. I I I like. Um, I love his voice so much, and um, to me, this had something the feel that something of the feel of his radio show, where he'll kind of he'll kind of be. You know, and we went into the uh, car rental place, and um, <laughs> all of the MC5s were in the were behind the desk at the car rental place, and um, they uh, they gave me a Cadillac, and um, Patty Smith was in the back seat, and I was wow. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: well, also this suggests that this is exactly how he works because this this project only came about because um, Underworld uh, found out that he was staying in the Savoy Hotel same time as they were and rick smith hired a load of his studio equipment brought a load of studio equipment into his hotel room Mm. invited iggy to come to his hotel room and then basically put a microphone in his hand and was like right do something so he had no choice at all and he probably just knocked this out in a couple of hours you know
1: i think they were they they were come they were in the same place because they were both they'd both been invited to come by danny boyle because uh they were kind of invited to contribute to the soundtrack to train spotting 2 and they'd both been on so iggy had lust for life and underworld had born Slippy on the first train spotting both really mm. iconic and in fact i don't know i think that was probably that was probably the beginning of the 90s iggy pop renaissance wasn't yeah. it lust for yeah life. yeah yeah everyone you know when when we went to like indie clubs and stuff like lust for life was a tune a, 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 would definitely be played and it was because of that movie rather than anything else. Mm. I mean, we didn't, you know, I'm sure people much cooler than me were were into The Stooges at that stage, but I didn't. I no, didn't, no, I didn't me have either. vinyl copies of The Idiot or anything, Um I didn't really know much about Iggy Pop at all. I like the um, fact that
2: the, in the way the lyrics work, that there is there is seriousness in them. Yeah. Another line from "I'll See You Big" uh, talks about um, demanding people, like people who are demanding, and says people need to be demanding. I started being demanding, and I lost my friends. As a demanding person, I got somewhere in life. I started having girlfriends and I was very demanding of them. I didn't let them be demanding of
1: me. You're not doing the voice, Kate. <laughs> That's because she was so horrified when I started doing the voice that she's just decided very wisely it's not, not a good idea.
2: I enjoyed it. It's great.
1: It's just like um and the underworld it just works quite well, doesn't it? It's kind mm. of you know, they're not really complicated musical tracks are there it's just sort of thumping underworld yeah underworld synths under them and there's a song um, called get
2: your shirt which is basically just a joke And yeah. just goes walk on
1: yeah
2: <laughs> and there's only four songs on this uh, ep it's not an album so um easy to get your head around <laughs>
1: <laughs> tea time dub encounters do we know what record labels these things are on
2: um the uh is there the, such Let's a see, thing grandma, as record grandma, grandma is anymore? transgressive
1: okay and tea time dub encounters is caroline International. Caroline
2: International.
1: And they're both.
2: They are both labels, incidentally, known for allowing a lot of artistic freedom to their charges. Are you and, making that up? No, it's true. Okay, and um, uh, they're sort of good indie labels that have quite an old school um, okay. heart and are quite strict about allowing artists to do what they want.
1: So we should support them and buy buy their music. I'm all ears. The Let's Eat Grandma album is out now, and Tea Time Top Encounters is out on the twenty seventh of July. It's time for us to celebrate the anniversary of oh, Kate. <laughs>
2: I'm already singing. You've,
1: you've queered her own pitch. Kate's already singing. And if you can guess it from that little, little <laughs> No snippet, one's going to guess it from then that then croaking can, sound. You can skip. Uh, you can skip this section. If not, Kate, what is our non anniversary um, this week? In
2: 1997, which is how many years ago? 21?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, this month... Save tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry was was number one in many countries, and it was the sound of the summer. Save tonight, and then it said like fight the break of dawn, and it was really annoying. Yeah, it's coming back. It's coming back to me. Um, it's one of those ones, a bit like in the high Jose
1: definition audio, <laughs> yeah. a
2: bit like the Jose Gonzalez song, where it's just an acoustic thing that just lingered for many, many, many months.
1: I mean, this is a real horrendous earworm. I know nothing about this guy. I must admit,
2: he's the. The half brother of Nina Cherry, son of Don Cherry, raised in Sweden, where Nina Cherry now lives, um, sent to New York at the age of twelve to go to school, which was quite tough. (laughs) He had a tough time. No, he didn't. (laughs) I'm imagining that. And he he was actually put in a well. He was put in a performing arts school with Jennifer Aniston in his class, so that could have been tough. You know,
1: mixed blessing. Yeah. Um,
2: And uh, yeah, that's all. He's not famous for anything else. He had this one song. He did. He's done lots of albums.
1: Do we know if he wrote it?
2: I don't know. Yeah. I imagine he did write it. Mm. I think he was, what's interesting, he was um, focusing on his acting. And then after his father died, he went into music. So maybe that's kind of a, a thing. I don't know. Don Cherry was a famous jazz musician. Mm, and right. his, his music was very different. I looked him up. He does have new material. <laughs> he is on a promo trail right now in Europe and he's looking good.
1: <laughs> what is it about the song that makes... That makes it so irritating. I think it's just it's, quite a relentless chorus. It's isn't relentless. It? Yeah.
2: yeah, it's um it's like an acoustic banger. Yeah. And it's a kind of bleaty sound, like a goatee. Yeah. Like save tonight. And it's very rough hitting yes, the strings. Yeah.
1: Oh, stop it.
2: Proper Euro hit, you know. I imagine it on like beach parties in, you know, the late nineties, with people wearing with those tattoos of like Chinese symbols. Yes. Save tonight.
1: Well, happy non anniversary to Eagle Eye Cherry. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Kate, before we go, I've remembered there's one thing I wanted to say about Alison Bechdel, which is that I think for people who have never seen the book, Von Home, heard of the musical, they will have heard her name because, of course, she gave her name to the Bechdel test. Ah! Uh-huh. Um, the Bechdel test being a test applied to films. Do they have at least two women in them who are named? And who talk about something other than a man. Amazing. And what's obviously extraordinary is how many films fail. How did this she test. how
2: did that become associated with her?
1: She actually attributes this to a friend of hers, but she wrote a comic strip in the 80s called Dykes to Watch Out For. Which is great <laughs> actually. I've got I've got a collected edition of it. And it's like a kind of long-running soap opera about it's a medium-sized American town. I forget where it's based, it's not named. And it's like a community of like some of them are lesbians, some of them aren't. A community of women just like getting on with their stuff and <laughs> having relationships and arguments. And she wrote this into one of her one of her strips. These two characters um, talking about film and saying like I don't go and see films unless they they fulfil this criteria. And the last film I the last film I was able to go and watch was Alien. Uh, this was in like 1985 <laughs> Alien had come out in 1979 so like, <laughs> the implication is in six years they haven't been able to watch anything um, and um, but it's, bec- it's become really, a really influential idea uh, to the extent that there are now film festivals purely based on the idea mm. of we only show films that pass the Bechtel test brilliant um, so um, so there you go I was trying to think does Home pass the Bechtel test um, but it does, of course. It does, Because she, she she especially has a relationship with, uh, with Joan. Um, yeah. <laughs> the
2: best line in the play and one of the songs I'm changing my major to Joan. I'm changing my major to Sex with Joan with a minor in
1: Kissing Joan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, thank you for listening. We've been edited by Caroline Crampton do get in touch on twitter i'm at tom or where we've got an email address the back half podcast at gmail.com please rate and or review us on itunes because that helps increase our medium-sized pool of listeners <laughs> and let's leave them with
2: we will be as ever playing you out with the sack grabbing pistol jazz and their song godspeed